the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. How do we not grow discouraged by church drama? And then, what role does optimism play for our health? You're listening to The Common Good. Friends, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on this beautiful Tuesday afternoon. Well, wet, but man, high 60s, 70 degrees. We'll take it even if it is wet. And then it's growing cold as we speak and we'll get cold overnight and be cold tomorrow. So uh, as we've been saying all week, this is the crazy time, the late winter, early spring time here in the Chicagoland area where things just kind of go nuts and uh, you can't really stay ahead of it. But hope you're having a great day. We're glad that you're joining us today. So One of the things that we're most concerned about on this show is the church. Uh, If you've listened to the show for any amount of time, you know that I'm a pastor. That's my primary job. I've been a pastor of various um, things for pushing 25 years now. I was a youth pastor. I was kind of the uh, associate pastor and adult ministries pastor uh, and have been the lead pastor of a church I planted for the last 14 years, and now we're in the middle of merging churches with another church, of which I will be the lead pastor of that. So uh, a lot of of craziness. I've experienced a lot in the church, and really, I believe a lot in the church. You hear it often that the church is God's plan A, that once Jesus ascended into heaven, the plan going forward for the for the spread of the gospel, the plan going forward for the furthering of his kingdom, the plan going forward uh, for the completion or, or the pushing forward of the Great Commission was not just individual Christians, but it was the church and is the church. So the rest of the New Testament is a story of the early church. The book of Acts, you see the church and and the rest of the epistles, you see Paul writing to the churches, the church in Corinth, the church in Ephesus, the church in Thessaloniki. You see him writing to the churches. And so we have a great concern and belief in the church and Frankly, it's hard to stay positive about the church sometimes. The Western church, the church here in America with which we are most concerned about. I'll never forget the very first day. This is what makes doing the show uh, intriguing, but almost sometimes difficult at times because uh, we get to or have to deal with the problems within evangelicalism, the problems within the church and the messiness of the church. And so there was yet another story, uh, a two-part story, a Christianity Today discussing a very well-known specific church. And I don't even want to get into specifics as much as I want to ask 
how do we not lose hope in the church? How do we not become super discouraged by everything we see in the church? This famous church out of Boston called Park Street Church, I actually have a family that attends and is very involved at Park Street Church, but Park Street Church uh, in in Boston, one of the most historic evangelical congregations in the country, it's going to survive, but it's kind of coming apart at the seams. And if you want to see the details of it, you go to uh, Christianity Today. They've written two pieces on it. But Park Street Church is a 220-year-old congregationalist church. And uh, they found themselves over the last year or so uh, they've got a senior pastor by the name of Mark Booker and something like of the 11 pastors that were there on staff, nine of them are now gone or something like that. I could be getting the exact details wrong here, but um, it's they had a six hour long meeting on Sunday. A six-hour long meeting in which they voted to affirm their current leadership, but even in the affirmation, it was by a vote of 350 to 173. So you've got a third of your church unhappy, not backing leadership. Like, it's just a mess. And there was all about there being serious concerns about his spiritual leadership, citing patterns at variance with biblical qualifications. And what got me thinking, I read both these long articles, because like I said, I've got family at these churches. It's It's interesting to read about. And if you like church kind of politics and church kind of polity, I would encourage you to go read this congregational church doing all their thing. Um, But it got me as I read it, I thought to myself, yet another discouraging happenings at one of the more famous churches in our country. And it left me, quite honestly, as I read the story of this six-hour meeting, it left me super discouraged. This is a church that has connections to Billy Graham. This is a church that is like well-known for sending out missionaries. And it's turned into an internal squabble that I'm not sure where it's going to end. It feels like uh, a fracturing. Maybe it will come out healthier on the other side. There was... A lot of talk about that, like that maybe we're doing this hard work to come out healthier, and we pray that that is the case. But the bigger picture question is, how do we not read these stories at Christianity Today or at other places and go, we need a new strategy than the church? The church is is just broken and messed up. Do you ever feel that way? I certainly felt that way reading this too long articles. And what I would say today uh, is this, the church is still God's plan A. There is no plan B. We need to continue to pray and work for healthy churches who are displaying well the fruits of the spirit, who are displaying well the glory of God, who are displaying well the majesty of Jesus Christ. He's the chief shepherd of the church, not these senior pastors or whatever else. We need to get our houses in order. And if you read these types of articles, 
Like, gosh, the very first day I did a radio show was the day the Chicago Tribune wrote the very first article about Harvest Bible Chapel right here in our own backyard. This has been a constant drumbeat in the five years that we've done this show. And it can become really discouraging. But what I have figured out is if you get discouraged about the church, get really local then. Get really focused on your church How can I can't do anything about these other churches that I read about, but how can I work to make my church, the church I'm a part of, to be the healthiest representation of Jesus to the world that it can possibly be? Where is the abuse in my church? Where are the holes? Where's the hypocrisy in my church? Because we always say churches will never be perfect, and that's absolutely true, but sometimes that becomes just a... um, an excuse for not working to make them better. They might not be perfect, but they can be better. And so I think as we get discouraged, we should get hyper local and go, okay, let me do, let me, let me influence where I can influence. Let me influence my church. Let me make sure that we are displaying the fruits of the spirit. Let me make sure there's unity within my church. Let me make sure we are pointing people to Jesus. Because when I read this story, it reminds me, quite frankly, of Jesus's prayer in John 17 about the unity of the church. And then you read this article and literally is using the word fractured. And it can be discouraging, but I need not be discouraged. God is still at work in his church, through his church, to bring about a kingdom movement, gospel uh, movement in our culture and around the world. So don't be discouraged, but also be wide-eyed and do the work. I I found something over at health.harvard.edu. Anything from Harvard Health. Uh, is probably worth giving a look at. And they were did a, a long study on optimism, on optimism. Namely, what does optimism do for our health? Does it make some sort of difference? It says, according to a series of studies from the U.S. and Europe, the answer about optimism is that yes, It does affect our health. Optimism helps people cope with disease and recover from surgery. Even more impressive is the fact of a is the impact of a positive outlook on overall health and longevity. Research tells us that an optimistic outlook early in life can predict better health and a lower rate of death during follow up periods of 15 to 40 years. So they talk about how you measure optimism, but without getting into that, into the weeds there, the question is, do you believe that? Do op, does our own optimism, our positivity make a difference in life? They talk about optimism and cardiac patients making a big difference in cardiac health, optimism and blood pressure. We know this one making a big difference in blood pressure, heart disease, and then just overall health, the overall health. Listen to this one. Researchers in Tennessee tell us this. They found that a genuine voiced laughter boosts energy consumption and heart rate by 10 to 20%. That means a 10 to 15 minute belly laugh might burn anywhere from 40 plus calories. 
It's a lot of laughing for a few calories, but optimists will enjoy this, they say. And then it gets deeper. Optimism and survival. People who are optimistic live longer. They live longer. So here's the question. Not only are you an optimistic person, but how do we grow in optimism? Uh, How do we grow in optimism? Because if it makes this big of a difference, then um, it seems important to kind of wrestle with. So some of us are naturally optimistic. I actually think I am a naturally wired optimistic person. I tend to see the glass half full. I tend to look at situations and go, oh, it'll be okay. Sometimes to my detriment, I'll look at things and be like, oh, no, don't worry about that. That's fine. Versus other people in my life who tend to be a much more glass half empty type of person. And you need people in your life who are going to point out what the, the, the eventual or possible pitfalls in something are. But if you are naturally a person that looks at life, you're like an Eeyore. You're like a gray cloud person. Like, besides, you know, how do we turn that at least a little bit? How do we become more optimistic people? Friends, I would say the gospel speaks to this. Let me be really Sunday schoolish for you here. When I ask, how do we become more optimistic? The answer is Jesus. So the running joke is, if you've grown up in the church, that any question asked in church or Sunday school, the answer is Jesus. And so how do we become more optimistic? I would suggest the answer is Jesus. Let me unpack that a little bit. There are a lot of things that can go wrong in this world. There are a lot of things that can cause concern. There could be a lot of reasons to ask, when is the next shoe going to drop? There are a lot of reasons that grow pessimism, that grow, um, you know, this view that says, ah, things are going to go poorly. But as followers of Jesus, what we know, what we know is that Jesus is ultimate, and these problems, these issues, these black clouds are not ultimate. And so when we see those black clouds possibly forming, we don't need to say, woe is us. Woe is us. And uh, everything's terrible. Everything's not terrible. Why? Because of what we're going to celebrate here in a couple weeks when Easter rolls around. When Easter comes around, we are going to celebrate the fact that despite all the brokenness in this world, despite the presence of sin, despite the black clouds, despite the ultimate reality of death, Jesus wins. Jesus wins, and because Jesus wins, we can still take a positive outlook on things and say it's not all bad, even when our life circumstances are bad. See, when your outlook in life is purely circumstantial, driven by my own circumstances, then yes, we'll be up and down, and there will be times of life where it will be like a black cloud, where you will feel that kind of um, pessimism. 
But friends, I would suggest it's not perfect, but I would suggest that the a biblical word for optimism is hope. It's hope that we can have hope even when our circumstances are terrible because Jesus has come because Jesus laid down his life because he went to the cross and because Jesus rose again. And now the Bible tells us that because Jesus has defeated sin and death, we now have hope. We now have life. We now have optimism that says, no, anything this world can throw at me cannot take that over, cannot um, remove the fact that Jesus wins. So I would suggest when we read studies like this, that the Christian should be the most optimistic person in the world. Why? And I don't mean a fake optimism. We all know fake optimistic people. They're super annoying. But I mean real optimistic people because we have this anchored hope in Jesus Christ. He is a firm foundation, no matter what is going on in our circumstances. So again, optimism, hope, They come as we continue to stay connected to Jesus, focused, our eyes focused on him, knowing that it's his victory that we claim and that our circumstances, no matter how broken they may be, are not ultimate. We have hope. That's what we gather to celebrate this Easter season. We, in fact, have hope. I've told you uh, a couple times now over the last couple weeks that for Christmas, all I wanted was a mini wood chipper. I got a little mini wood chipper, an electric wood chipper. I mean, when I say like mini, you cannot put anything in there beyond like small sticks and small stuff. But I was like, I want that because I got all this stuff to cut down in my yard. And then I told my wife like yesterday, I said, I'm going out to wood chip. I'm just going to wood chip. And she laughs at me, but it's become like this cathartic thing where I put earbuds in and listen to podcasts or music and just start feeding stuff into the wood chipper. And there's really something cathartic and nice about uh, stick goes in, wood chips come out. There's something good about that. Now, I now I want a big wood chipper, but I can't afford that, nor would it would be kind of weird. Uh, but maybe one of these days, maybe we'll maybe we'll rent one for one of these days. But. All that to say, hopefully you get yourself outside at some point uh, and enjoy yourself. So uh, if you've missed any of our show this week or you can't stay every we know most of you can't be here from four to six every day. So if you can't do that the rest of the week, go get the podcast wherever it is. Get your podcast. Just subscribe, rate, review. We've got lots of great guests this week, including coming up. Uh, Later this hour, Scott McKnight, uh, he has written a lot uh, in general, but also in the past couple years has written a lot about abuse within the church and where, how do we come to healing? How do we find healing? And so I'm excited to talk to Scott McKnight here later on this hour. I saw this uh, fascinating thing at the Atlantic and uh, I want to use this as the jumping off point to go, how are we as Christians supposed to supposed to might be the wrong way to put it how what should be our posture towards a culture that um seems overly sensitive and particularly about some things that we as christians may very well believe or might be part of how they see us 
So let me read from The Atlantic. This is a guy uh, writing at The Atlantic named Adam Rubenstein. Uh, He was at The New York Times. So he says, one of my first days at The New York Times, I went to an orientation with more than a dozen other new hires. We had to do an icebreaker, pick a starburst out of a jar, and then answer a question. My starburst was pink, I believe, and so I had to answer the pink prompt, which had me respond with my favorite sandwich. Uh, Russ and daughter's super sandwich came to mind, but I figured mentioning a $19 sandwich wasn't a great way to win new friends. Amen to that. So I blurted out the spicy chicken sandwich from Chick-fil-A, and I considered the ice broken. The HR representative leading the orientation chided me. We don't do that here. They hate gay people. People started snapping their fingers in acclamation. I hadn't been thinking about the fact that Chick-fil-A was transgressive in liberal circles for its chairman's opposition to gay marriage. Not the politics, the chicken, I quickly said, but it was too late. I sat down ashamed. And he goes on to say in the story, he was kind of hired at the, the New York Times to kind of be a dissenting voice and all of this stuff. But that story got me thinking, right? We jokingly call in my family. We've done it on this show before. We jokingly call Chick-fil-A Jesus chicken. But this is a reminder that there are people who are very against the faith, who are very against uh, some of the views kind of of Orthodox Christianity who also view it as Jesus chicken. And it's just fascinating. All he said was, I like the spicy chicken sandwich from Chick-fil-A. And immediately he was chided by an HR rep. They hate gay people. Like you can't say you like the sandwich because of the views of the chairman. I love his reply. Not the politics, the chicken, but uh, it was too late. You see this happen Uh, With other things, cancel culture, right? Within our culture, uh, Disney World or other things. We don't do this because of. And I'm trying to think, how do I, as a Christian, how am I to navigate this? So if if I came in contact with somebody who got this worked up about, say, Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich, what's my posture going to be? I, I would suggest that too many of us within the church, within Christianity, within evangelicalism, take the bait and go like go nuts and want to fight back. And okay, if you're going to cancel, if 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 you're going to say I won't have Chick Fil A, then I won't have this, and it just becomes this back and forth. Might I suggest that that's the wrong posture? That we can have a more calming posture. Like if I were in this situation and somebody said this about Chick Fil A. Uh, I I think for many of us, we'd want to argue. Oh, no, no, no. Do you know this about Chick-fil-A? They give this, they do this. And there are places for that. But I think in those moments when we are confronted by what I think all of us would say is a ridiculous reply. I also jokingly love the picture here of them snapping their fingers in acclamation. It can be really easy then to come with an us against them mentality. And I don't believe that the picture we see of Jesus, the posture we get from Jesus towards the world around him is an us against them posture. 
think about the story of the Samaritan woman. That is the ultimate, quote unquote, us against them posture. And so um, Jesus, with the story of the Samaritan woman, comes to the woman at the well, right? That's also how it's known. He shows up at this well. There's a Samaritan woman there. She's there by herself in the middle of the day, which means that there's a scandal going on. She's been not only ostracized uh, as a Samaritan, but she's been ostracized by her own people. Otherwise, she would have been at the well in the morning with the other women. And Jesus begins to talk to her and she's like, are you talking to me? She knows he's not supposed to talk to her. A Jewish rabbi talking to a Samaritan woman is scandalous. But by the end of the story of the woman at the well, of the Samaritan woman at the well, a revival breaks out. But even Jesus's disciples are like, what are you doing? They had all been conditioned with an us against them mentality. And Jesus said, that's not how we're going to do this. And now I fast forward to our day. It feels like increasingly you see Christians taking an us against them mentality. But instead, as we model the humility of Jesus, we get reminded we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, even our neighbors who we disagree with. So you're in a situation where it's ridiculous. They're like, we don't talk about Chick-fil-A. It's just craziness. It's just chicken sandwiches. We can respond with anger and defensiveness, or we can ask ourselves, what's it mean to love my neighbor in this situation? Let me show some sort of grace. Let me be a picture of the gospel Let me be a picture of a Christian that maybe they're not getting in another spot and not make it about an outrage about a chicken sandwich. That's what came to mind when I read this. It's just a ridiculous story. But even some of the people that I saw talking about it online, they were just angry about it, just angry about it. And I don't know that we as Christians move the ball forward very much by responding to each little moment with anger. Uh, That's certainly what we see here. It's been a great show, a wonderful Tuesday, as we've had lots of good guests. We've had good discussion. If you missed any of those guests in particular, or you've missed any of the show at all, go get the podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, review. You can also find us online at 1160hope.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good talk again we're glad that you've joined us and one of the guys we had on earlier uh was a pastor at the orchard uh the orchard of arlington heights his name was matt zobby and he was a pastor of seniors and of care and it really got me thinking this idea of the pastor to seniors so many churches as matt and i talked about um you don't there comes an age where you stop kind of especially in like medium to smaller size churches where you stop kind of tailoring your age specific stuff you you think children's ministry youth ministry you might have a young marrieds ministry but eventually it all just starts to meld together matt did a good job helping us understand you know there's there's great ministry to be done in that stage of life speaking to people who are retired or retiring, speaking to people about what it looks like to continue to lean into ministry. 
continue to lean in in your faith because uh, we are as a church culture, but also just our culture in general, American culture. We are very centered on um, youth. We look to the youth, our presidential election, notwithstanding here, this conversation, uh, we tend to value youth and value um, that more than others. So I thought Matt did a great job helping us realize, hey, there's a that older generation has a lot to speak to. They have a lot of time to give. They have a lot of wisdom. And the Bible talks a lot about us revering our elders, looking to our elders for wisdom. The culture of the Bible time looked a lot more towards the elders and their wisdom than probably we do in our culture. We like youth and new And then we become the elder generation. We get mad about that. But it's just kind of the way it works. Greg Laurie on Twitter said, uh, and then it was to an article of his at the Christian Post. He says, new believers need older believers to stabilize and ground them. New believers need older believers who are going to stabilize and ground them. That's so true. There's this mentoring idea. There's this idea of, uh, I remember when Carrie and I were first married, how many older couples in the church kind of came around us to say, hey, let us help you navigate this marriage that you guys have just gotten into. Let us help you navigate the stages. Let us help you navigate what's coming. Because, yeah, the newlywed stage is wonderful. Uh but then there's just the we're married stage and they wanted to come along and give us their wisdom. Young married couples need that. But we also just need that as believers. And we don't need to. There's value in it in segmenting ages, but uh, you shouldn't just be surrounded by people your age. So, again, if you missed Matt Zobby, he 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 did a great job kind of unpacking that. But then Greg Laurie goes on to say, but older believers need younger believers to motivate and excite them. Sometimes after a while, we may start taking some precious truths for granted. We lose that sense of childlike awe and wonder. We lose that sense of childhood awe and wonder. It's beautiful. This is like a two-way street. It's like a two-way street. There's the older, the, the younger believers need the older believers to ground them and bring them along and these kinds of things. But the older believers need the youth to say, to keep them young, to keep them with wide eyes of wonder. What do we love about children, right? What do we love about youth? It's this. They've got eyes of wonder. The world is their oyster. Anything is possible. And then we get older. We get a little jaded. Things become commonplace. And we go, ah, whatever. Younger believers need older believers to ground them. But older believers need younger believers to inspire them with this sense of awe and wonder. Jesus says he wants us to have faith like little children. He wants us to be like little children. 
What does he mean by that? Little children are trusting. Little children uh, are, are wide-eyed. They're expectant. Little children need, they're, they're in need. But for little children, right, the world is their oyster. And think about youth and I think it's, it's done very purposefully that Jesus always drew the children to him. And I guess I want to end the show this way. Have you lost your childlike awe and wonder, particularly for your faith in Jesus? Do you still, regardless of how long you've been a Christian, do you still have a childlike awe and wonder for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? See, we can never become callous. We cannot allow um, ourselves to become jaded. But instead, we are called to have wonder and awe. I'll never forget the first time when our kids were little, when we went with the grandparents to Disney World. And to see the kids' eyes all day long as they saw characters or they saw the castle or they saw whatever it is they saw and they they just were wide-eyed they had wonder and awe friends the longer i'm at this the more i believe awe and wonder are the fuel for an expectant and growing faith in jesus but what happens so many of us we become christians when we're young and by the time we've been Christians for decades, we lose that awe and wonder. It becomes commonplace. And that just can't be. So how is your awe? How is your wonder? Are you still amazed by who Jesus is and what he has done? If you've lost that, look to the children. Have a childlike faith. Spend time this week praying that God would grant you eyes to see anew, that he would grant you childlike faith of awe and wonder and amazement. Whether you've been a, a, a Christian for 40 days or for 40 years, we should still have that amazement. Make that your prayer today. Pray that God would give you again an awe and a wonder of who he is and what he has done for us. Well, we're glad that you joined us today on this Tuesday afternoon. Join us again tomorrow from 4 until 6 p.m. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
the explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.